Okay, everybody, welcome. I just lost the app on my phone that I used to record this with. That was a disturbing moment. I have a new home screen which shows almost nothing apart from black. It's a kind of anti-distraction device that I couldn't find the app that I need, actually need to record these with. Anyway, I found it now. All's well that ends well, and we've not even begun. So uh, welcome to those of you who are joining us online. It's great to have you with us, and a good crowd here as well. Um, so welcome to you all. Let me lead us in prayer. Uh, then we have uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 11 to look at this evening. I think you're going to enjoy this one, by the way. I know, yeah, seriously, I know a lot of Ecclesiastes, you feel like you go home, like, why do I do this to myself every week? You know, after another uh, week of Solomon pointing out the misery of the world, this one is uh, a little different, actually, and um, I was quite excited to dig into it this afternoon and earlier this week, so hope you will be too. Let's pray, and then we'll get started. Merciful Father, we are so grateful to you for the kindness that you've shown to us in so many ways and uh, in making us members of this congregation, in uh, joining us to Christ, in opening wide your arms for us, in redeeming us uh, in our Lord Jesus and in giving us this opportunity today to to study and to think and to uh, uh, look at your word together. We pray, Father, you'd open our eyes again and help us to see glorious and wonderful things in your word, things which will equip us to be faithful stewards of the opportunities you've given us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I feel like I can hear somebody talking behind the... Does somebody else want to go behind and see who that is? Just bear with me. Uh, Oh, is it Mrs. Bennett? Maybe you won't want to go and mention that, because otherwise I think we might be able to hear part of her conversation. Or at least I can from where I'm standing. It might be one of those weird things where I can hear something and you can't. I remember being in an airport once, I forget where it was, and there, was, there were these really cool speakers where if you stood in a particular spot, you could hear this music playing, and if you stepped two feet away, you couldn't. It's like, really cool. It's like, that's some impressive technology. Anyway, Ecclesiastes chapter 11. It's funny, the first time I heard that, I thought, is there an echo? Doesn't sound like my voice. Right. Anyway, Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Uh, We're going to read the whole chapter and then see what we've got here to look at. Okay, verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth or maybe on the land. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow. He who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed and at evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart 
and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Okay, I want to start by asking you a question, which might seem unconnected to what we're going to talk about this evening, but the connection will, I think, um, soon become clear. Uh, Adults, can you put, seriously, put a hand in the air, adults, if when you were younger as a child, you had some idea of what it was you wanted to be when you grew up. Right? Oh, my word. Uh, now, put your hand up again if you ended up doing it. Oh, really? A couple of people did. Oh, another one did. What was it that you wanted to be, Mrs. Robinson? You wanted to be a mum. And check that out. Okay. Uh, Mrs. Herrera. You, you wanted, thought you wanted to be a nurse, became a physiotherapist. Okay. Mr. Herrera. I wanted to see the next national anthem that So you didn't get to do exactly what you wanted to do. I, I, remember, I remember wanting to be a fighter pilot. Shame. Um, uh, I remember sitting in church once uh, when I was young. It was a Church of England church. Uh, not in many ways, a lovely, friendly place with some wonderful people, but not a place where you'd hear great Bible exposition or, or see great examples of uh, the Christian life being lived. It was, uh, it was a church in the kind of place where all the respectable people still went to church, and that was what it was really all about. But I remember looking at the vicar once, the vicar is a kind of Church of England pastor, and thinking, well, I definitely don't want to end up doing what he's doing. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> So I thought, yeah, I'll become a scientist and see how that worked out. Um, and one of the highlights, I mean, the, the experience of um, Mrs. Robinson uh, aimed at a fairly broad target, being a mum, and, and a, which is wonderful. But isn't it actually the case that most of us don't end up doing what we thought we were going to do? At least... If you got really granular about it, even if you did end up doing in a broad sense what you thought you were going to do, you get to the specifics and you're nowhere near. I mean, even once I, again, just personal testimony time, once I started training for pastoral ministry, I had not the faintest idea of any possibility of coming to Fort Worth, Texas to serve in a Presbyterian church with you guys. I mean, this... This was as much of a shock to me as it was to anybody else when the idea was first floated to me. So um, that actually reflects what our lives are like. Most of us have not the faintest clue what's going to happen. But we know that something's going to happen. Or at least, hopefully. Just to take the example of work again... It might be the case that you cannot, with reliability and precision, predict what it is that you will be doing in five years' time or ten years' time, or you younger people, 15 or 20 years' time. But you hope, by God's grace, you'll be doing something, correct? You don't know what job you want to do, maybe you've got a few ideas, it probably won't be any of them, but it'll be something. And this principle is actually reflected here in Ecclesiastes, and it generates some moral priorities. Uh, You might simplify it like this. 
trust God and try something. You don't know what's going to happen. Who knows? But you know something's going to happen, and it's only going to be good if you have a go. It's only going to be good if you try. And just think of all the illustrations of this that you might come to. You know, you don't know what subject to study if you go to college. You don't know uh, whether to do biology this year or chemistry. You don't know whether to take that job or that job. You don't know uh, whether it'd be best to rent that apartment or that one, or whether it'd be good to live in Granbury or nearer to Fort Worth. Or you don't, but you know you need to do one or the other or something else of those things. And they all require you to do something. And I want to show you how that's reflected just briefly in the passage in front of us. And then we're going to look in a bit more detail at it. And I also want to show how and why it's integrated actually into the whole big picture of Ecclesiastes. So let me just give you a few hints of this in the passage. Just the first couple of verses, for example. Um, Cast your bread on the waters and you'll find it after many days. Put something out there and it might come back to you. Can you see that's the general gist of what's going on in verse 1? Verse 2, maybe give a portion to seven or even to eight because you don't know what disaster might happen. If you're generous or you give or you trade or you give something to somebody else, some disaster might happen. They might be there to help you out afterwards. Um, uh, Verse 4, if you just stand there looking at the wind and looking at the clouds... You're not going to reap anything. Um, Verse 6. In the morning sow your seed, in the evening withhold not your hand, perhaps from another job. Because you don't know which one's going to work. Can you see, there is a message here, and I'm going to get into the detail of these portions of the text and other parts of the text, where there's an undertone of just try something. Try something. Now, how is this reflected in an connected with the message of Ecclesiastes as a whole. I'm conscious there's one or two folks who haven't been with us all the way through Ecclesiastes. So I'm going to just sketch uh, the very broadest brushstrokes of the message of the book of Ecclesiastes, which can be summed up, if you turn all the way back to chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 2, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, is Solomon. He calls himself the preacher. Actually, it's not the preacher, it's Kohelet. It's the one who gathers the assembly Um, we can talk about why that name is appropriate for him if you like, but we have talked about it before. You've got some previous recordings if you want to listen to that. But the message of the book as a whole is chapter 1, verse 2. And we've only probably got today and maybe one or two more left after this. So I need you all to tell me, uh, just to prove that this has been worthwhile, and you all know what the Hebrew word that's translated vanity actually means. So I'm going to shout it out. I'm going to get you all to say it together. Ready? One, two, three. Three. <laughs> so half of you actually said it in Hebrew, which is really classy. What is the word in Hebrew? One, two, three. And a word means what? Mist, vapor, fog, something like that. Excellent. So everything is hevel. Hevel is the Hebrew word. Um, and it's sometimes translated vain or vanity or meaninglessness if you've got the NIV. If you've got the NIV. Well, good on you. I used to have an NIV, still in my study. Um, uh, the ESV and most other modern translations translate it vanity. Neither of those is a great option. It means mist, vapor, fog, in the sense of, well, lots of things. These images convey lots of things all at once. Um, ephemeral. 
doesn't last very long. Life is like that, isn't it? Um, unpredictable blows this way and that. Can't be caged in. You can't put boundaries around it. Um, beautiful. If you've ever looked at the mist over a lake or the mist over a field in the morning. But actually, if you're stuck in it, really murky. If you're a pilot, you don't want mist on the airfield when you're coming into land. So it makes life dangerous sometimes. But what that implies about how we should navigate life is spelled out positively in Ecclesiastes 11. What's the danger, you see? If you think, well, life is like mist, it's dangerous, because you don't know what's going to happen, it's confusing and perplexing, there are times of darkness, you don't know which way it's going to go next, you can't put boundaries around it, and then suddenly it's all gone all of a sudden. You might think, oh man, the risk of getting it wrong is just too great. And the book of Ecclesiastes actually pushes us in precisely the opposite direction. This is one of, most, one of the most positive chapters in the book. Let, let me summarize the message uh, in a couple of sentences rather than just what I said before, trust God and try something. Here's how I'd summarize it in a couple of uh, sentences. The book as a whole says, you don't know how your life is going to pan out. You can't know. You can't predict it. It's out of your control. There'll be times of darkness and times of beautiful brightness, and you're called to enjoy it, even knowing that sometimes there's a time for tears and crying and mourning. Therefore, what you should do is just trust the Lord and have a go at lots of different things. And think about how you might apply that principle to all kinds of different areas of life. Having children, my goodness, there's a challenge. I mean, you get married to a wonderful husband, and what you'd always wanted to be was a mum, and now you can have children. You, were you ever gripped by a momentary anxiety about, my goodness, what's this going to involve? And you know, <laughs> Never, right? Of course we are. We, I mean, every parent has those kind of rabbit-in-headlights moments, don't they? Um, uh, I remember saying to um, my wife, Nicole, after I'd witnessed the birth of our first child, Ben, I said, honestly, you, you know that I would love to have more children, but honestly, if you, if you didn't want to ever go through that again, I'd quite understand. Seriously. And I think there's something hardwired by God into mothers that makes them want to go through with it again, clearly. <laughs> um, which is a wondrous gift from God, actually. Um, but all of the things that the Lord lays before us entail risks, unknowns, uncertainties. You don't know what it's going to be like being married. You don't know what it's going to be like in that job or that job. You don't know what it's going to be like if you do that apprenticeship or that training course. You don't know what it's going to be like if you marry that guy. You don't know what it's going to be like if you choose that degree or if you move to that church or you buy that house or you invest in that business. You've no idea, really. You can kind of mitigate the downsides, but you really don't know. So what should you do? 
you could so easily be paralysed by the uncertainty. And what the Lord wants to say in Ecclesiastes chapter 11 is, no, 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 no. don't be paralysed. Trust me. Because it might be hevel to you, but it's not hevel to him. It is not hevel to him. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He's numbered all your days. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows every step you're going to take. He knows all your prayers before you ask them. Uh, He knows the day of your birth and he knows the day of your death. He knows everything about you. And he's inviting you. He's given you ten chapters of gritty, sharp-edged realism. He's not hidden from you any of the realities of the world around you. He's told you that there will be a time where the right thing for you to do is just to weep your eyes out. He's told you that sometimes life will be so unfair. He's told you that uh, there's just no possibility of predicting anything meaningfully about your future. And now in chapter 11, he's going to say, right, if, if you're just willing to trust me, We could have such fun together. (laughs) There's so much that the Lord has laid before all of us. And in this chapter, he's going to just give us some encouragement and some practical ideas, in a way, about how to lay hold of those opportunities. Yeah. So let me read. I'm going to read through a couple of verses at a time, and we'll just try and tease apart some of the details of what he's saying here. So verse, let me actually pause a second. Any questions so far? Is this making sense? This is the positive, well, the the first big positive, here's what to do, apart from enjoy life, kind of, and and there's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and so on. This is positive in terms of setting a vision for our future. Okay. All happy? Yeah? All right. Any questions from online? No, nothing yet? Really? Wow, that's impressive. That comment section normally gets lit up by about 10 minutes in. I've read some of those things. Anyway, all right. Uh, Verse 1. So, uh, think now in terms of concrete images. Um, Not abstractions. Concrete imagery. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on the earth or on the land. Now, I, I think these two verses are probably linked. But actually... They, there's a, there are messages in them, multiple valences to what they're saying, um, taken alone or taken together. Uh, can you see the overall picture, at least of verse 1? Uh, you don't know what the future's going to hold. You don't know when you're going to be hungry and not have any food. So what should you do? I'll just throw a bit of, throw a bit of bread on the waters. And then what's going to happen is... In the future, when you need it, you might just come across it. Now, this is the thing: the ducks are going to eat it. In England, this is it, kids who live near a park that has a duck pond in it. That's exactly what they think immediately. I taught this once in London, ten or eleven years ago, and that was my illustration. This is not about go down to the duck. Um, I'm not sure people used to feed the ducks in ancient Israel. Yeah, very good. You see, so now you see what you're starting to do is you're, you're starting to think about what's the significance of this particular imagery. Abstract it slightly for a second. 
and we'll, then we'll come to the specifics of the bread and the waters because there's some detail in there. But just um, imagine for a second uh, that bread didn't get waterlogged and sink and go soggy and blech. If you just were on a long journey or you're just living in a kind of wilderness area and you put food stores out in various places, would that be a useful thing to do? You know? And especially if you're in a place where, you know, sometimes the weather closes in and you get stuck out on Dartmoor or something. There's a place in um, England where Sherlock Holmes, the Sherlock Holmes novel, The, the Hound of the Baskervilles, no, it's Bodmin Moor, isn't it? Um, the, the Hound of the Baskervilles is set on Bodmin Moor, I think, mysterious and foggy, misty place. So if you're smart and you have to live out there, you would put supplies in various places so that you could come find them if you needed them, maybe. And... Can you think of kind of um, practical examples of this? It's like you might just invest in lots of opportunities just in case something good happened. You might not think, well, I definitely want to be a novelist, so I'm just going to study English literature. You might think, well... I might get stuck with having to do something else, so it might be a good idea to learn some maths. Sorry, math. Probably should do some science as well, and definitely some theology if you're a student. Yeah. You wouldn't put all your eggs in one basket, that kind of thing. So there's that kind of picture, but come on. Bread and waters. Because actually, see, if you just think of the illustration as an illustration of food storage, it's a really bad illustration because the, the bread's going to go all soggy and you can't eat it because it's all sunk or the, the ducks have eaten it or something like that. So why, oh why, would bread and waters be the imagery that Solomon has chosen to deploy here? Miss Robinson, yeah, Sophia. <laughs> Might it have something to do with teaching going out to the Gentiles? Give that young lady a leather-bound Bible as a prize or something, because clearly she's been reading it. Well done, well done. Now, now let, some of you are thinking, hold on a second, I, how did she get there? How did she get from bread waters to teaching going out to the Gentiles? Bread, teaching, come on. Man shall not live by bread alone, but, thank you, by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's what Jesus says in response to the devil's temptations in the Gospels, quoting from the Old Testament. Um, Man shall not live alone by by bread alone, but bread is like words, which is what, what struck in my mind a couple of weeks ago when Pastor Neil read the Gospel reading, um, give me three loaves of bread that I may have something to set before them. And for the first time in my life, I thought, oh my goodness, I wonder if there is some connection between the man going and asking for bread to set before people and a preacher asking the Lord for words to set before people. I think I'm, that might even have popped into the prayer that I prayed before sermon. So yes... Um, bread as the word of God. Um, bread also has another very hefty 
set of resonances in the um, in the Bible. Um, okay. When the five thousand had been fed, what, what? Oh, Sarah's got her hand up. Let's come over here. Ah, very good. There's something in Peter Lighthart's book on the Ten Commandments. Yeah, there was definitely something in Peter Lighthart's book on the Ten Commandments. Um, and, and you're exactly right. Both the bread and the waters represented there. Um, let's help everyone else catch up, shall we? Um, after the feeding of the 5,000, how many baskets of bread were left over? Twelve. Twelve. Do, do you still not understand? Mark 8. Turn with me to Mark 8. Come on. A light is dimly shining in your mind. Is that what you use, Samuel Franklin? I'm glad to hear it. We want that, we want that um, light found into a flame. Um, this is really interesting because this tells you how you're supposed to read the Bible, by the way. Um, the feeding of the 5,000 is back in Mark 6. And after the feeding is over, 6.43, they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces and of the fish. Those who ate the loaves about 5,000 men. And then we move on, Jesus walking on the water. So they've, they've picked up 12 baskets. And then in Mark 8, Jesus feeds 4,000 again. And after that time, they pick up how many baskets? Seven. And they've just got like, so they had 12 baskets the other week, and now they've got seven baskets. And then Jesus is um, talking with them about bread in the middle of Mark's gospel. He says, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. And the leaven of Herod. And verse 16, they're all getting confused because they think he's talking about bread. And he's like, oh, you guys are so thick. Verse 17, Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact you don't have any bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And don't you remember? Now, just pause a second. What that means is what he's about to tell them should have been blindingly obvious. Because he's rebuking them for not getting it. All they did was pick up 12 baskets of bread a few weeks ago and then seven baskets. 12 bread, seven bread. Should have been obvious. Look, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, verse 19, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. Seven for the 4,000. How many baskets did you take up? They said, seven. Verse 21. And he said to them, do you still not yet understand? Presumably you can all explain it now, can you? Can you? There's an obvious message here, Jesus thinks. Twelve and seven. Okay, so where do you find twelve, not baskets of bread, twelve, I'll give you a clue, loaves of bread? In the tabernacle, back in Leviticus 24. Turn back with me to Leviticus 24, because obviously you've all read the book of Leviticus. You read it every month or so, right? In uh, close and uh, excruciating detail. This is, by the way, this is all the vitally important detail that's missed out in Joshua 24, in um, 
the narrative of the, the, the history of the people of Israel before the renewal of the covenant. In Joshua 24, 2 to 13, all of this stuff in Leviticus is completely missed out because I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. It didn't form a significant part of Israel's self-consciousness. They'd forgotten about the law. They'd forgotten about the tabernacle, which is a real problem because it's so important. In Leviticus 24, verse 5, you shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf, and you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord, and you shall put frankincense on it so it goes with, as a memorial portion to the Lord. And every Sabbath day you arrange it before the Lord regularly so it doesn't go mouldy, you change it every week. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offering of per- perpetual dew, something that's owed perpetually. So bread, how many loaves again? What else are there 12 of in the Bible? Disciples. And why are there 12 disciples? Because the 12 tribes of Israel, because they're like the new tribes, 12 tribes of Israel, which is why Jesus goes up on a mountain and calls 12 people to him, just like the Lord called Moses up on a mountain to assemble and constitute the 12-fold people of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. So bread is like people, and the proof of it is that 12 loaves, 12 tribes representing the people so the people so to speak live in the presence of God and the priests take the people into themselves so that they can rightly represent the people before God and so speaking of taking bread into yourself so that you can represent him oops um, what do we do every Lord's day we take Jesus into ourselves so we can represent him in what form do we take Jesus into ourselves. Bread. And word, because man shall not live by bread alone. Right? The reformers insisted that word and sacrament are part of Christian worship. You don't just go and have the sacraments. The, the sacraments and the word are, are how Christian worship works. So bread is like people. It's like Jesus. It's like the 12 tribes of Israel. So cast your bread on the waters. Psalm 65. Flutter, flutter, flutter through the pages of the Bible to Psalm 65. Um, Hands up if you know what parallelism is in Hebrew poetry. Aaron. You had your hand up. Were you stretching? Do you know what parallelism is in Hebrew poetry? Are you going to tell us? Uh, Go on. Perfect. They're two lines which are uh, different to each other, but they're similar enough that they're connected in some way, and, they, and so they inform each other. Perfect, perfect, perfect. So Psalm 67, sorry, 65, um, verse 7. Well, let's go back a couple of verses. By awesome deeds you answer us with, right, us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might. Verse 7. Who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. Roaring seas, roaring waves, tumult, peoples. Why? Because the seas 
represent in biblical imagery the nations of the world surrounding the land of Israel. So in uh, symbolic geography, you imagine the land as a kind of island surrounded by the roaring nations. And on the north and south and east, it's literal nations. And on the west, it's a figurative nation, the sea, from which the nations came in their boats. And this fits with Israel's history because for most of Israel's history, they're terrible sailors. Only a very short period of Israel's history did they ever master sailing on the Mediterranean Sea, partly because there aren't many ports to access it, and those that there were were occupied by Philistines and Tyrians and Phoenicians. Um, and so they never really got into sailing. So the sea was the place from which other nations came. The sea peoples who lived on the coast were other nations. And so in biblical imagery the seas became this kind of paradigmatic way of talking about the other nations of the world so what you're supposed to do you take all that scoop it all up and you give it to Sophia Robinson and she, she sort of spits it out in the form of maybe the word presumably spoken by the people of God gets spoken to the nations go back to Ecclesiastes Cast your bread on the waters, for you will find it after many days. It's not about storing food on Bodmin Moor. Well, it, it, it might have resonances with that. It's not just about what we will be talking about later. Um, here's an opportunity. Well, let's have a go. Here's an opportunity. Let's have a go. It's actually, if anything, primarily about the mission of the people of God to not just speak to the nations, but go to the nations, perhaps. It's not something that Israel was really called to do under the older covenants, but it's certainly something we're called to do now. Think of how the book of Acts works. Acts 1.8, Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, ends of the earth. There's a geographical movement outwards. What you've got here is this wonderful combination you so often get in Scripture of practical instruction, cast your bread on the waters, you'll find it after many days, and theological teaching about the whole mission of the people of God to be the vehicle by which the word of God is taken to the nations. Which is kind of interesting that it's Solomon who wrote this, because think 1 Kings 10, what happens in 1 Kings 10 that's relevant to this? Right, the nations come to him. Solomon is seeing beyond his own privileged calling. In 1 Kings 10, the Queen of Sheba and other leaders of nations came to him. Well, the Lord's got a better idea. Once the Spirit is poured out at Pentecost, now the people can go out into the world. And here's the weird thing. We tend, if, if we... Um, if, we, if we're presented with that image, of course, we tend to think of ourselves as the people of God, yeah? And we're called to go out into the world with the gospel, correct? Right, good, true, but mm, in the first instance, we are the ones who were at the ends of the earth to which the word of God came. We're, we're not the 12 loaves. We're the waters. <laughs> I mean, all those barbarians up in northern Europe, some of whom decided they'd rather live 5,000 miles away and ended up down here in Texas. 
we are the ones that the word of God has reached in the first instance. We are the heirs of this promise. So that's interesting, isn't it? Just to, just to drop that in at the beginning of a, say beginning, first half hour of a conversation about what we do with our lives. It's interesting how it might, might that reshape our priorities slightly? We're going to be thinking about work and education and planning for the future and how we should take those opportunities. And the first verse of this chapter actually drops in this idea of, yeah, God's mission is to take the gospel to the nations. Wouldn't it be wonderful if that somehow became part of our aims as well? You with me? Let me pause for a second and then we'll jump in verse 2 maybe. Um, Any questions or comments about that so far? Pastor Neil, please, yeah. As far as mission is concerned, that's a a pointed question. Why would Solomon include this here? Hmm. Uh, I think there's the the mission needs to be found, first of all, in Jesus Christ. And he is the one in whom bread and water are conjoined because Hmm. there is someone greater than Solomon here. Hmm. So that would be Jesus, according to Matthew 12. He is the bread of life and the living water. And our union with him yeah. allows us to partake of that one loaf mm. and then to be the water. So that would be one thing. Mm. You'd Thank also you. ask, why would we put water, uh, bread into water? That would be kind of muddy mm. or something. Uh, it would tend to go a bit gungy, wouldn't it? Well, except that this, if I'm not mistaken, is a reference to an ancient recipe for brewing beer which takes time. So what is beer other than liquid bread? <laughs> and so throwing bread into the water is brewmeister yeah, yeah, yeah. stuff, which takes time. Yeah, very good. like that. Yeah, it's, it's, I've mentioned this before. that Everyone thinks that Boaz and his friends at the end of barley harvest are really excited because they've got bread. <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> they're, they're, they're excited because they get to throw bread into water, barley into water, and watch it ferment into beer. Yeah, absolutely. And the, that process is that long-term process. Like that. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. Um, yeah. Great. Uh, John. Taking this verse, meaning Yes, yes, yes. I think that's right. And, and, and so all I've said about um, the imagery of the people of God and the word of God and the nations of the world doesn't undercut that more um, gritty, practical, be adventurous, try, try something. And I, 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 you know, I, perhaps I'm underplaying that because we're going to come to it in multiple different forms in the next few verses. So, yeah, thank you. Mrs. Bennett. Does that mean that God will grow his kingdom hmm. across, in those other places? Yes. 
I think it might do. I think it might do. Um, yes, and I, I think if you couple it with verse 2, you start to see you, we're led to consider other ways in which we may find it. So, so look at verse 2, for example. Um, it, it seems to flow just directly from verse 1. Give a portion to seven or even to eight. What's that mean? A portion will be a portion of food in this context or a portion of some, something valuable. Four, and here's the rationale, you don't know what disaster may happen. So there's a missing step in the logic. Um, be generous to lots of people or give stuff to lots of people. Give a portion to seven or eight different people because some disaster might happen. And why, why will it prove useful that you've been the sort of person who gives portions to lots of different people? Right, thank you, Evelyn. They, they, might just, they might be generous in return. If, you've, if there are seven or eight different people that you've helped out when they had a hard time, then maybe they're going to help you out when you have a hard time because you don't know what disaster might happen on the earth. Right, now just we can get really practical now because um, this helps us to think about both um, charitable benevolence and business, trading. Um, the people curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. That's Proverbs. Where is it? I even made a note of it here. Um, no, I didn't. Yes, I did. 11.26. Interesting. There's a, um, those who would hoard what other people even want to buy, not um, necessarily want to receive as a gift, will incur the irritation and fury eventually of people who just want to buy some food, want to buy some grain. And a blessing is on the head of him who sells it because if you give a portion to seven or eight people then they'll be disposed to generosity. So just think practically. Like if, honestly, you have no idea what your future's going to hold. It's all hevel. It's not hevel to God but it's hevel to you. If you're stingy, miserly, unkind, well, you know, no, let's think positively. If you're the kind of person who's generous-spirited and always eager to help, you'll just develop the kinds of relationships which will be a tremendous blessing to you. What kind of person are you going to be? Well, you know, somebody else needs help moving house because they're coming here from California or something, you know. Well, let's, let's go down and help. Come on, let's just jump in the back of a truck and help them and unload all those boxes. Interesting. You notice what happens. We had, what, 17 or 18 people came over? Which is actually, it's probably about the right number. I mean, if we'd had more than that, it would have been like, we'd have been tripping over each other. So God was very good. It was very, um, uh, practically, it was, it was great. But here's an interesting question. We're a church of 300. If we were a church of 50, how many people do you think would have been there? I think probably about the same, maybe more. I mean, some people would have not been able to come. Some would have been younger children. Other people would have been, uh, on, had other commitments. I reckon we probably would have had about the same number if we'd been a church of 50. Uh, and why is that? I mean, I don't... I'm not now... This is not a criticism or a beat-up, but here's the danger, here's the temptation. We grow as a church to the point where we instinctively start to think, oh, somebody else will do it. Can you see the danger? Wouldn't that be awful? You know, that's the sort of thing that makes people say, I want to find a small church. 
I've got bad news for you. Like, post-millennialism is true. We can't have all small churches. We need some big churches. Sorry. Right? I like small churches because I get to know everybody. I love this kind of group. Actually, I love a group of like half a dozen as well. Just like Bible and theology classes for the, the 11th and 12th graders. There are like eight of us. It's fantastic. You guys are a bit overwhelming. 300, that's a bit overwhelming. You don't get to talk to everybody. It's so much nicer. If no, too bad. We, we actually need to learn to handle larger groups of people. And one of the things that can go wrong is we all just step back from commitment because somebody else is going to do it. Wouldn't that be... What a missed opportunity that would be, you know? Whereas if we're just... If we got to the point where... You know, we're having, there's one family in the church, and this is actually a really encouraging sign, there's one family in the church that is having to turn down offers of practical help with food and so on because they've received so many offers of help. I think not just from our church, but from elsewhere. Isn't that wonderful? Wouldn't it be wonderful if next time somebody has a baby, right, she actually has to say, and her husband has to say, listen, we're so grateful for the frozen lasagna could you bring it in a couple of weeks' time? Because we've just got no space in our freezer to put any more in there. Yeah? Um, there are some practical things as well buried a bit more deeply here. Um, seven or eight. Um, the, the phrase at the beginning of verse 2 Give a portion to seven or eight. It looks like it's to seven or eight people, correct? That's the, the, the obvious reading of it. It's possible, though, that the Hebrew preposition that's translated to might have another meaning. It might have a temporal meaning. It is, it's, it's a slightly rarer use of the preposition, but it could be for seven or eight in terms of time, probably therefore years. Now... When would you ever have to give something to somebody for seven years in the Bible? Oh, hold on, we've got people calling you. Go on, Tate. When there's a famine, yes. When you have to work for a wife. When you have to work for a wife, yeah. Yeah, very good. Yeah, somebody's been reading Genesis, good. Um, Tim? Thank you, pardon? Indentured servitude, very good. And, and all the associated things, because the seventh year is the... Year Jubilee. Year, no, it's 50th year, almost. Um, the seventh year is the year of the redemption of... Uh, the, the, um, uh, the debt... Uh, debts get kind of cancelled. Turn back with me to Deuteronomy 15. I'll show you what's going on, I think, here. Um, this is not just about... Um, uh, business. I mean, we've already touched on this. Um, Deuteronomy 15. The sabbatical year. And what's going on here? It, well, chapter 15, verse 1. Deuteronomy 15, verse 1, this is. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. Every seven years, you shall not exact it of your neighbor and so on, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Now, it's not obvious historically that this was ever done in Israel. It's possible that it never was. But what's supposed to happen? Every seven years, if uh, I've borrowed some money from Samuel, 
Uh, the seventh year comes round. If I still owe that money, to, and this is assuming I've borrowed it not for commercial purposes as investment, but it's a, it's a poverty relief loan, and you and your generosity of spirit have um, you know, lent me some money just to help me out, and you're keeping me accountable, and I'm trying to repay it. But then the seventh year comes around, I still owe you a couple of hundred. What are you supposed to do? Let you off the hook. Let me off the hook. Now, I might still choose to repay. It might still be better for me to do that, but... You should grant a release. Now, so what's the temptation? Imagine we're in year six, and I come to Mr. Bennett and say, I need to borrow a bit of money, Mr. Bennett. The the temptation is what? Right, because year six, man, the, the, the year of release is near. If I lend him money now, he's only got six months, and that would be like four payments, probably, by the time he gets round to it. And then... My pastor will be on my case because it's the year of release after right off the debt. And so the Lord says, look down with me, verse 9. Well, you trap back to verse 7, actually. This, this highlights, this is a poverty relief loan. This is not, yeah, please help me to buy a car, right? Or I want to go skiing in Colorado. I need to borrow $5,000 or whatever it is. Um, if one of your brothers should become poor in any of the towns within the land the Lord your God has given you. You shall not harden your heart or shut up your hand against your poor brother. You shall open your hand, lend him sufficient for his need, not sufficient for his holiday in Colorado. Whatever it may be, take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing and he cry to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. You should give to him freely. And your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because this is the, for this the Lord your God will bless. Sorry. Because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. So you see, there's a promise there. If you lend somebody something in year six, knowing full well they probably won't pay it back. The Lord will bless you for that. In fact, you could lend it to them in year one, and they're really slow in repaying. So it's like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. How many years should you lend it to them for? Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 2. 11, verse 2, sorry. How many years should you lend them this money for? Give a portion for seven, or even for eight. You see? Because you don't know what disaster may happen on the earth. Not to you, right? but to them. So you can see now another element in navigating the uncertainty of life. Here we all thought, because I kind of introduced it in this way, that Solomon is going to be giving us these wise instructions for navigating the uncertainty of life so that we'll be okay. And here in verse 2, he's picking up Deuteronomy 15 and telling you how to navigate the uncertainty of life so that he'll be okay. Somebody else will be okay. Your poor brother, you're lending him enough that he'll be able to get by. Seven, even eight years. I mean, eight years, it's over, isn't it? It's a gift now. And if all of us are looking after each other, then probably we'll be okay. Might even be glad that we're in quite a large church at that point. Yeah? Pastor Neil, yeah, you had your hand up. Thank you. 
uncertainty of life and considering the context here of clouds and wind and trees and planting and reaping, do you think there's some application as well to the sabbatic year of letting the land lie fallow in the seventh year, which could be, you know, you're not going to even touch it until the eighth year. So mm. it applies to vineyards, trees, crops. Mm. about that? Uh, yeah, I don't, I'm not sure, I, I, because it would, it would certainly fit with the seven and eight, and then, then the, you don't know what disaster will happen. That then would be a portent of the judgment of the Lord, which in Jeremiah, I mean, maybe you're thinking of this, the reason for the exile, according to Jeremiah, is obviously, therefore, it's one of the reasons for the exile, is because the land never got to enjoy its Sabbaths. The Lord really cares about the Sabbath. Exodus 31, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. It's really important that we let the land rest. Um, my struggle with that would be give a portion to, or give a portion for. I don't know what that would refer to in that context. But once you've, I mean, once you've got the sabbatical year in your mind, you're then thinking of all the functions of the sabbatical year, aren't you? Which would include generosity to the poor, returning land to its owners, letting it lie fallow. So yeah, in that sense, it's that, got that connection. Yeah, thank you. And it's interesting because we're, we're tempted to say, look, I don't know what's going to happen, so I can't afford to lend you anything. Sorry. I don't know what disaster may happen, so I can't afford to lend it to you. And what does the Lord say? Lend, because you don't know what's going to happen. It's, just, it's this kind of wonderfully inverted logic of the gospel. Um, somebody, somebody might need to borrow some money off you soon. Now, you don't just, we're not going to be irresponsible about this because lending is always going to be linked either to um, some kind of uh, contract because it's an investment if you're in business or some kind of uh, really sharp-edged accountability if it's for poverty relief. Okay? We, we, we're, we're not in the business of being sloppy with our resources. That, that wouldn't be wise. And as a church, I wouldn't want to encourage people just to, well, lend, 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 lend in some unaccountable way. If somebody comes to you personally to ask for a loan, I encourage you to come with them to talk to somebody else, maybe Pastor Neil or something. Um, but seriously, it's a, it's, it might be a helpful context for you to serve somebody if the Lord has blessed you materially. Um, so let's keep, keep it accountable. But I'm serious. This might be an important opportunity. Yeah. Um, Joel, please. Mm-hmm. It says there's one who scatters and that increases all the more, and there's one who withholds. Yeah. But it's just to do, and that it results only in one. Yeah, yeah. It also made me think of the, uh, you know, the parables of the talents and the minds. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, there's that whole section in Proverbs 11 about um, uh, it keep, keeps coming back to money. And I want to read that because it's such a helpful uh, reference. One gives freely yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. That's what Solomon has observed. Yeah. And, um, I mean, you're the economist, Joel. Um, uh, It's kind of interesting, isn't it, that this, you know, I think we, we both and probably most of us are, I'm very grateful for the um, the quantitative analysis of the Austrian school and the free market economics and so on, and Milton Friedman and others like him. But 
this does defy raw economic calculus, in a sense, doesn't it? There's the, the, and the reason it does is that the Lord is sovereign in mysterious ways. And if you just hoard, then, like the man who built many barns, or the, the man with the talents, I think, was it, we were talking about this, were we, earlier, did you mention? Or was it, I was thinking of another conversation. Another conversation, that the man who hid his talent in the ground because he thought he'd be safe there. No, no. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. He does kind of promise to look after us. Yeah. It's it's yeah, but it's it's prosperity not because you got that book from Joel Osteen and you're repeating the mantra. It's he's he'll look after people. I mean, and it's obvious when you think about it, if you're part of a, a community of people who are keeping each other accountable, if you've got into financial trouble because you've been irresponsible, then a loan is going to come with what you need, which is help to get yourself sorted out so you've got a job and you're, you're not on a downward slide anymore. But we're able to accommodate one another's short-term needs in that way. Right. Um, yeah, Aaron. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No parent has certainty. No parent has true certainty that their child will separate all day from getting wealth. Yes, yeah, that's helpful. Just the connection between Solomon and his and his children, and the disappointment that many of them were to him. And you do have that in chapter two, and actually in the second half of chapter two as well. Um, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he'll be a wise man or a fool. Yeah, well, I think we know who you've got in mind, Solomon. <laughs> um, yeah, John. Right, right. And, and, and this, actually, I was, I'm outside of my expertise, but I'm in an area that interests me in speaking about this. Your, your, your reference to risk and time horizon basically amounts to, if, you, if you're able to invest in something financial and you don't need the money for a long time, you can allow yourself to have a higher degree of volatility, stocks and so on, because you're not going to need it suddenly and over the long term though it will be up and down more the overall trajectory will be steeper right whereas if you just stick it in bonds you're guaranteed to get your two and a half percent or something but you'll lose six percent because of inflation so um yes the, the the ability to tolerate risk over the long term allows you to just in financial terms invest with more ambitious yes yeah, um, and then, but then your point, the time horizon is eternity. Yeah, exactly right. So we, 
Um, and that actually connects with um, uh, a couple of other points later. So we, we won't go through every verse in this detail, but notice, for example, um, a bit later on, um, verse 9, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in all the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Now just think about that for a second. This is drawing together all the threads that are in verses 1 through 7, really, certainly 1 through 6. And we'll look at some of those others in a moment. And saying, rejoice, enjoy the life the Lord has given you while you have it. Remember the Lord will bring everything under judgment. The decisions that you made to withhold generosity or the decisions that you made to not take a risk, the Lord will judge. And I want to spend the remaining time that we have on that issue of taking a risk because we've spoken a lot about charitable benevolence and generosity, which is an important strand of this passage. But um, look with me at verses 3 and 4. And actually, we'll read all the way down to verse 6, which inhabits a set of images that are dominated by a different concrete setting. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow. He who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of, a man with, um, womb of a woman with child. So you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, in the evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know, third, you do not know, which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Right, what's going on here? Look, verse 3, let's take it one step at a time. Verse 3, you've got a picture of farmer. It's all about farming. Can you see that? Don't be distracted by the, the spirit coming to the child in the womb because that's just an illustration of something you don't know it is important but it's illustrative of what's going on in the concrete setting which is a farm and this person goes out and the clouds are full of rain and they empty themselves on the earth and if a tree falls to the south or to the north it will just be stuck where it lies now what's that going to do for a farmer well the farmer goes out to his field and he's not he's not sure whether it's going to rain this year if the clouds are full of rain They'll empty themselves on the earth. But it might not. And second half of verse 3, if a tree falls, I mean, the tree might fall on you. Wouldn't that be awkward? The tree might fall on your field. Are you going to be able to move the tree? No, because it says where it falls, it's going to be stuck there. So you go out into the fields as a farmer, which, of course, was a very common profession and vocation in ancient Israel. Your year ahead is full of uncertainty. What should you do? Well, let me tell you this. If you just stand there looking at the wind, you're not going to sow anything. And if you're just gazing at the crowds, you won't reap anything. You're guaranteed to starve if you just stand there worrying. Yeah, you're looking at the clouds, looking at the wind. Is the wind going to blow the tree over? It's pretty breezy. It's Texas, you know. (laughs) I'm not sure it's worth sowing seed this year because that tree looks like it's going to blow down any minute. And then I wouldn't be able to harvest it. No, no, no. You're guaranteed to lose if you do nothing. Now, then you've got the three, you do not know, you do not know, you do not know. And the, they're all 
designed to point in the direction of the same thing. We, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know the way the spirit comes to an unborn child. We don't know the work of God who makes everything. And in very practical terms, verse 6, this is what you ought to do. In the morning you should sow your seed, and in the evening you should start a side hustle. You can't sow seed in the evening. It's dark. <laughs> um, there's no artificial light in ancient Israel. You know, you've got a candle or oil lamp. You can't sow seed like that. So you're going to go out in the morning and sow the seed. And in the evening, what are you going to do? Well, something else. Why not? Why are you going to do that? Well, because you don't know which will prosper. You don't know which is going to work. It might be that the harvest is great, but the tree might blow down and land on the field. You can't harvest it. And there might be no rain. In which case you probably should have a side hustle. You didn't know that Solomon invented side hustles, did you? You thought that was a kind of 2013 phenomenon. No. It's, it, it, this is the practical implication. We've thought about the, the charitable benevolence thing and some detail and, it, and how the Lord will bless those who are generous in wise and thoughtful ways to others who have need. Now what he's saying is, like, of course you don't know which career is going to work out. So probably do them both. Or something. Or anything. But don't do nothing. Are you with me? So now just think for a second. Are any of you at all in a position where you're thinking about your future and you're not sure what to do? I'm looking at a whole bunch of people who are in exactly that position. Now, now most of you are doing something right now, aren't you? Which is great. It's good. You should be. You're not sure whether this is right for the long term, or you know it's definitely not for the long term. You're still at school. You're going to run out of time. What should you do? I don't know. But whatever you do, don't stand there gazing at the clouds. Which hospital should you try and get a job as? At a nurse? As a nurse at? Or should you go to college, or should you go to community college, or should you get an apprenticeship, or should you get... I have no idea! But don't just sit coming to Bible study every Wednesday night worrying. That there'll come a point where I'll tell you to stop coming to Bible study until you've applied for a hundred jobs. Seriously. And it, there might come the point where you start saying to yourself, you know, I do have this job during the day. It's not it's not as certain, as secure as it could be. I do have a bit of time in the evenings. I do have a bit of energy. You know, maybe I could push myself. In the evening, withhold not your hand. You can imagine the farmer saying to Solomon, yeah, but, you know, I've done a good day's work. I did my eight hours in the field, sowing and mending the fences and clearing all the vermin out of the barns. And Solomon says, yeah, welcome home. Uh, Here's your dinner. Now get to work. Yeah, get to work. In the evening, because you don't know which one is going to be fruitful. So look at the end of verse 6. Or whether both alike will be good. And that would be awesome, wouldn't it? Because then you'd be able to be really generous to your poor brother who comes to you in the sixth year and says, I need you to lend me some money because I've just yeah, run out. You with me? So can you see how Solomon is teaching us to navigate uncertainty? The way that we navigate uncertainty is by faithfully, so trusting the Lord, he knows what's going to happen. There's two things. There is charitable 
wisely directed kindness, costly kindness. And you never know how it's going to come back to help you. And it will certainly help others if it's done wisely. And then secondly, you're not working hard enough. No, no. Some of, many of you are. Maybe, maybe most or maybe, maybe all of you, though I doubt it because there's some teenagers here. You have no idea what you could do if you put your mind to it. Yeah? Not working smart enough, yeah. Yeah. Working hard and working smart are not always the same thing. Of course, some people think that if they work smart, they don't have to work hard. Now, did you remember that Microsoft, was it a Microsoft advert where it was a picture of a guy, it was, it, and basically it was taken from the perspective of somebody who had a laptop on his lap and then sort of flip-flops and who's sitting on a beach. And the whole thing was like, you can get all your week's work done in two hours or something. That drives me nuts. I mean, if you could, then you could do that 20 times and be really helpful to a whole bunch of people, you lazy muppet. You know, why not embrace the goodness of work? We're going to be talking about this, Lord willing, a little bit throughout this year. I'd like to talk about this work issue from a range of different perspectives. Mr. Herrera, you have something to say? Yes, yeah. Start where you are. Do what you can. Yeah. Very good, very good, very helpful. And it's interesting, this then makes sense, um, just briefly as we finish, of verses 7 and 8 and the beginning of 9. We've looked at these a little bit briefly. So light is sweet and it's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. What's that all about? Uh, Think, think, think. Under the sun in Ecclesiastes is in the world that we're living in. It's pleasant for you to be able to see the sun. So if you live many years, rejoice in them all. Yeah, Light is sweet. You can see the light of the sun during your life. So if you live many years, rejoice. How many years might you have to work and be generous and enjoy the life you've been given? But remember the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Oh, thanks, Solomon, for making us miserable again. Yeah, what, in other words, you've got a finite amount of time before you die to await the resurrection. And so enjoy those years in the way that Solomon is highlighting, this generous, spirited, hard-working, ambitious, creative, vigorous, giving yourself to whatever you're doing. And then verse 9, rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. Yeah, what a, just enjoy all things, but remember, the Lord will bring all the things you've done into judgment. Yeah? Remove vexation from your heart. Put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. It's a little bit like the Old Testament equivalent of Paul in Philippians 4. Don't be anxious about anything. Don't. He heads off in the direction of prayer, which obviously is presupposed here for the man who prayed that long prayer at the dedication of the temple, at the kahal, the gathering. 
But here he's focused practically on, okay, so what are you going to pray for? What are you going to work for? Okay, we're out of time, more or less, got a couple of minutes left. Any comments or final thoughts or questions? Pastor Neil, you've had some great, um, thank you for those comments this evening. Any, anything else you want to throw in, brother? Okay, thank you. All right, Pastor Shaw. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, he, he tackles three fallacies that we teach our young people. And yeah. I feel like he's right on. He's, he's right on track. The first fallacy is that what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Yes. Of course, all our, our grandmothers and our mothers told us what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And it, it's created a whole like generation of people who adopt atheism as a yes, yes, as a religion. And I, I'm. Um, I think one of the attractions for me of coming to this church was knowing that I was coming to a church where people were not afraid, young men and young women are not afraid to work. Have a go, yeah. Pursue relationships that are meaningful and things like this. So yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. That's a, it's a great book. I've, I really enjoyed it when I read it. And um, The Coddling of the American Mind by um, Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt. Um, yeah, really good. Um, I know a few of you have already read it. Um, but the risk point is interesting. I, mean, I was talking about this with you briefly this afternoon, Pastor Shaw, and you, you, you said the word risk. And it's interesting because that's a, a theme that I mentioned more when I talked about this previously. Yeah, I think you taught this to college students, right? Or, yeah. yeah. Safetyism on steroids. Yes, because we've trained ourselves, or we've, um, there's, there's a, there's a, there is a, a now a, a certain demographic, kind of social political demographic that has trained itself to be hyper anxious and hyper safety conscious, and one wonders whether they'd ever risk anything, and it's interesting. You can risk if in this measured, wise way, if you know that God is sovereign. Yeah, stop worrying. So you don't know which hospital to try and apply to. You don't know which course to do. You don't know which job to get. Should you stay at your bank or go somewhere else? You don't know whether to move house or you don't know whether to apply for that job or that course and you have no idea what to do. So pray about it, think about it for a bit and do something. Right, trusting the Lord will lead you and it'll be fine. And if it works out bad, don't worry. Somebody will help you out and then we'll get you back on track and you can have another go. Yeah? Oh, I'd love Ecclesiastes now. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's got this optimistic end, hasn't it? And then this leads straight into next week. Um, chapter 12, verse 1. Remember also, ah, there's one more thing. Remember, remember also your creator. And we'll pick up that next week, Lord willing. Okay. Um, you've been great, as always. 16 minutes past eight. We're ahead of schedule. How about that? Um, let's pray, and then we'll go. Merciful Father, we're grateful to you. What a wonderful joy and the privilege it is to be granted these, well, we don't know, few or many years of life to enjoy the opportunities that you've given us. We pray you teach us this liberating combination of generosity and 
energetic, cheerful, joyful, hard work that embraces with confidence the reality of the uncertainty of life, knowing that it's not uncertain to you and we can trust you and we should just try something in faith and faithfulness. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everybody. As always, um, if we're able to sort out the chairs, set up for the oaks, I think you know the drill, you know where they go. That'd be wonderful. Thank you.